Hey, good morning. We had so much fun last week. If you weren't you weren't here last week, that was loud. Um, if you weren't here last week, you missed an awesome fiesta. And uh, we, as a as a family, I can speak for all of us. We had such a good time. Uh, you wrote so many encouraging cards and. Um, we especially loved how you you shared with us the things that are meaningful to you around Marin and hey check this out and you got to try it eat here and uh, things like that so it was it was last week's fiesta was great and I'm so glad we're going to start doing that every week um, <laughs> maybe not I don't know but um, actually we're not but it would be nice um, and so I don't I don't know what you when somebody mentions the word church I don't know what the first picture that comes to your mind is. It could be this room. It could be something more cathedral-like. But in a way, really, what we experienced after church was really kind of church. I mean, that was very much a beautiful picture of what first century church was like as people gathered together around a meal, um, sharing life. I got to hear some stories, uh, just a little bit of your background. And thank you. What a gift that is to hear someone's story. And I look forward to, uh, to more of that. And so we've been we've been looking at um, for a whole. Uh, this is our second week now. We've been looking at um, this uh, the in Revelation two and three. Jesus wrote letters to churches. Jesus loves churches. He cares about the church. It is the way that um, as he has ascended, it's his way of continuing to be hands and feet here in this world. And so he writes letters to specific churches. Now, um, when John recorded these reflections that uh, that Jesus had to say, um, it, it's it's interesting to note that Jesus did not critique anything that had to do with their Sunday worship service. Um, it didn't have anything to do with uh, the style of the speaker or the volume of the music or anything like that. He kind of says, okay, let's talk about some things that really matter here. And there were specific things for each congregation that really matter. And, um, and we talked also about this big C church and how beautiful it would be for us to be a part of the big church here in Marin. If Jesus were to write a letter, I don't know if it would be specifically just for us or if he would just say, hey, those of you who have chosen to follow me, I've, I have something to say to you in Marin. And what kind of a testimony that would be for our neighbors if they could see a unified church one one church coming together to worship Jesus. Um, I want to give us a real practical way to do just that this morning. Right now, as we meet, there are churches meeting in Gilroy, El Paso, and Dayton. And in those churches are some deeply distraught, heartbroken people. There's probably some people at church for the very first time because of the tragedies that, is, that have taken place. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is enter into a time of prayer and not only praying for those families and friends that are directly impacted, but I want us to pray for the churches that are going to have an ongoing ministry to them. And I don't know names of any churches, maybe you do, um, through the news or from being in Gilroy, for example, but I want to I want us to remember specifically those churches and the way that God is going to use them to bring hope and healing to those communities. So if you would, just bow your heads. And I'm going to pray, and then in a moment, in the middle of that prayer, I'm going to uh, just pause and be an opportunity for you in the silence to pray as well.
Jesus, you are our Savior and friend. You are one who weeps over losses. You wept over the loss of your good friend Lazarus. And I believe today you weep with those who weep in Gilroy, El Paso, and Dayton. We know you to be the God who draws near to the brokenhearted. And as we sung, I believe that you are saying, come as you are to those people and those communities. You have sovereignly positioned churches in those cities for such a time as this. So we pray for them, for our brothers and sisters who are serving the grieving, grant them strength. For our brothers and sisters who are making themselves available to sit with the deeply distraught, overflow hope. For our brothers and sisters who are ministering to those who do not yet know you, give them boldness to preach Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And in this time of silence, as God prompts you to, um, pray for the churches, the families, and the friends. Lord, I thank you for your spirit who, in the silence of this moment, um, hears the groanings of our heart. We continue to intercede on behalf of our church family. We pray this in the name of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Amen. Amen. Um, if you brought a Bible or you want to use a Bible that's uh, near you there, we're going to be in, in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to look at the church in Philadelphia. Now, I think you know this, but we're not talking about Pennsylvania, okay? Um, this church in Philadelphia that Jesus wrote to, uh, this is one of the six churches who received a letter, and it's located in modern-day Turkey, um, kind of a little south and inland of the Aegean Sea. And uh, a little interesting fact about Philadelphia is that it was known for earthquakes. People there lived in a fear of earthquakes. And uh, so um, feel free to make any parallels as we go along with, uh, with this church in Philadelphia. So beginning of verse 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. I didn't do this last week, but I want to, I want to pause for just a moment and I want to highlight the personality and the character of the sender of this letter, the one who wrote the letter, Jesus. Because can we agree it's not just what a letter says, but who says it that makes such an impact when you, when you receive a letter? Um, he's described as holy and true. Now, there's there's two words for true in the Greek, and one of them is like the opposite of false. It's like true, correct. And then there's this other one that means not fake. In other words, it means real and genuine. 
So this is how Jesus is describing himself. He is saying, I am the Holy One, which means he is acknowledging that he was set apart for a sacred purpose. Um, but he also reminds us that he's not, this isn't just from some ethereal force floating out in the cosmos. Okay. This is Jesus who took on human form and lived a real and genuine life on the same dusty earth as the people who were receiving this letter. This is the Jesus who lived a real and genuine life just as we are walking through a life right now. So as he is, um, as he is establishing himself as the writer, he's not, he's not just saying, Hey, I'm, I'm holy. So you should listen to me. He's also saying, I'm with you. I know what you're going through. I understand the challenges that you are facing. Have you ever, have you ever had someone say, yeah, I know how you feel, but on the inside, you're like, you have no idea how I feel. You ever been in that situation? Okay. I was, um, I was speaking at a camp in South Carolina and it was a couple of months after my dad died. And I shared a little story about my dad and it was apparently too early for me to talk about it as I just kind of broke down in the middle of the talk I was given. And this nicest um, eighth grade boy came up to me afterwards, gave me the biggest hug. And he said, man, I know how you feel. And my heart was just bursting. And he goes, because earlier this summer, I lost my cat. <laughs> and it was just what I needed in that moment, <laughs> just to kind of break some of the tension that I, you know, and stress that I was feeling. So, so in a way, I was like, maybe you don't know exactly how I feel, okay? <laughs> Cats, and I can understand how close we get to our pets, but... Um, and so Jesus is saying, I am real and genuine. I lived a challenging life here on earth. And we, we kind of look at Jesus and sometimes we limit his role to um, just how he was the atonement for our sins, but he's also the example for us of what it's like to live right here, right now on this earth. And so if you're here and you're investigating the claims of Christ, I think that is awesome that you're here. I want to say that first and foremost. But I urge you to consider how he is an example for you to live. Um, he did this life real and genuine. He is the real deal. He wasn't just kind of real preachy at certain key times. He was just, he just lived his life fully present, fully loving the Father, fully loving those that the Father brought across his path. He was both heavenly minded and earthly good. That's the Jesus that we would want you to get to know. So let's continue walking through this passage. Um, what he, Jesus, opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon." Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. 
I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to focus on something in particular here. And it says that Jesus opened a door. In other words, he provided an opportunity for the church of Philadelphia to serve in a unique way. He opened a door, provided this opportunity. So this is what I'd like for us to consider today. Could it be that what Jesus loves the most about a church is its potential? Could it be that one of the things that Jesus really cares about is the potential of what that church could do for the kingdom? In verse 8, I think this is, this is interesting how, okay, so he says there's this door of, op- of, of opportunity that I'm going to open up. And he says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I wonder if Jesus mentioned that right after the open door because he knew that they were going to give an excuse. Okay, I've got something that I'm calling you to. I'm going to open up the door for this great opportunity I know, I know, you're kind of a small group of people, you consider yourself weak, I know that, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In other words, um, I know you're going to have these excuses, but you've been faithful, and that's why I'm asking you to do this. I, I love that when we give an excuse, sometimes God doesn't just kind of you know, give us this big old pat on the back. Oh, no, no. It, it's not like, you know, well, like when, when Moses was complaining and saying, no, God, I can't do this big thing. God, basically, God said, yeah, you're right. You're, you're really not equipped to do this, but I am going to do this through you. And so I kind of wonder if they just had this, Jesus knew they were going to say, I don't know. I don't know. I have little strength. You know, and this could be, maybe they were young in the faith. It could mean that they were a smaller congregation. We don't know exactly what that means, but it was an excuse. And Jesus was like, no, mm-mm. you might be, but we're still going to do this. This is an open door that I am giving to you personally. And uh, so it was to those specific group. I want to highlight just three objects that are mentioned here and, and kind of help us relate to them. A door, a key, and a pillar. A door, a key, and a pillar. So back in verse 8, um, talking about the door, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Like I said, Jesus opened the way for this church to minister in a unique way, but specifically who in this church was invited to walk through that open door? What do you think? Which key individual or what group was being invited to step up and to walk through it? Let me read what this verse does not say. Okay. Sometimes we can, we can really kind of look at the opposite and we can maybe get a, a, a clearer picture of what he's saying. Uh, this verse does not say, I have placed before your pastor an open door. <laughs> um, it does not say, I have placed before your trained seminarians an open door. It does not say, I have placed before you who have ample finances an open door. I have placed before you who have a lot of spare time an open door. <laughs> Probably because he knows none of us <laughs> have spare time. Um, he's, it reads, I have placed before you as a church an open door. That word you is actually singular. He's talking about everyone in 
the church. The door to serve and minister was open to every single person in that church. Everyone. When you walk into a, a bathroom at a, like, a, like a restaurant, they almost always have that sign posted in there that says, employees must wash hands. And I'm, I'm thankful for that sign. I really, I think that's a very good sign. But I always want to put a sign beneath it that says, shouldn't everybody? <laughs> I mean, isn't that something that we should all be doing? I mean, I'm not going out there to prepare food, but shouldn't we all... And I wonder if, if kind of in our excuses, should the church leadership seek open doors to serve? And I would say, shouldn't everybody? Shouldn't everybody be invited in on this party, this opportunity we have to make a difference? Because realize it or not, you're, there is something in you that says, I, I want the most out of this world. I want to make the most out of it. And you want to contribute. You want to give back. And this is a way that God made you. And so he's opening a door. He opens a door for us to make a difference. And this, he's not saying that just this, I'm just going to barely open this door. So certain people, he, is, he flings it wide open to this church in Philadelphia and says, shouldn't everybody be a part of this? Let's all look at this open door and let's run through it. So yeah, pastors and elders, single moms, Empty nesters, young families just starting to get going. Um, if you've been following Jesus for most of your life, it includes everybody. Now, if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, this would be what I would say. First, open the door that Jesus is knocking on. First, open the door and allow Jesus to come in and be the Lord of your life. And then, immediately afterwards... You don't have to go through a special class. You don't have to spend so much time and training immediately. Begin looking for an open door because God wants to use you to advance the kingdom. So each of us as the church, we've got to go through an open door. And Jesus says there that he saw their deeds. And I wonder if by seeing their deeds, he saw something in them that were like, these are the kind of people that if I open a door, they're going to take advantage of it. There is something about the way they were living their life, maybe with a willingness or maybe even more with an eagerness and an ambition to make the most of their time here on this earth. So let me ask us this question. Does our life indicate a willingness or maybe even an eagerness and an ambition to run through those open doors that God gives? Are we already kind of leaning forward in anticipation of that? Are we saying, God, just by the way I'm living my life now, I'm just open it, I'm there, I want to go. Um, some of you may know this, I'll mention that we, uh, my wife and I met in St. Louis, our kids were born there, uh, Beth and I were born and raised in, in, the, in the Midwest, and it was it was not too long after we made the move out here. We didn't move from St. Louis directly to here. We made a very circuitous route across pretty much the entire United States. <laughs> but we are here, and we love it. And uh, when we came out, I was just kind of considering the differences, and especially in pace between the Midwest and the Bay Area. And if you're not aware of it, there's there's a pace here that is like none other. 
And I ended up kind of thinking through the differences between St. Louis and this Bay Area. And I, I journaled a few thoughts. I live in a state founded not by settlers, but by pioneers. These were people who headed west until they could head west no more. On the other hand, I grew up in St. Louis, which has the moniker of the gateway to the west, or kind of to use the words that Jesus used when addressing this church, um, St. Louis was the open door to the west. Now, ironically, St. Louis, the gateway to the west, was founded by pioneers who turned into settlers. There were people who began their journey on the eastern edge of the continent. Something about the Wild West captured their attention and awakened their desires, but many stopped in places like Missouri and Oklahoma, the place where pioneers turned into settlers. Maybe it's something in the DNA of the people of this area, but pioneer actually accurately describes the Bay Area. People don't typically work here because they think it will be easy or that this is a comfortable place to settle. Just the opposite. Many people arrive here as pioneers seeking something greater than what they left behind. A word synonymous with pioneer is the word risk. And a word that often accompanies risk is reward. The world knows that risk and reward are characteristics of this area, of the Bay Area. But does the Bay Area see these same characteristics in the church? So here's my question, or my, my statement. The church should be the most pioneering and risk-taking organization in the Bay Area. I believe that with all my heart. We should be leading the way. And I don't mean, you know, we should have the, the, the greatest technology in, the, in, in what we do. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying when it comes to risking our lives, we should be the first ones to step up and say, yeah, I would, I would do that. Because what God is asking of us is, is sometimes a lot more than just risking life savings, risking something like that. It is, he is saying, are you all in? What if, I mean, when you look at the life that Jesus and his ragtag group of followers lived, and after Jesus ascended, you see how those guys and those, those women, they caught fire and lived with just this holy flame guiding them. I mean, the, the way that they took risks makes Elon Musk look like he, he's building Lazy Boy recliners or something. It's just like, yeah, well, okay, whatever. I mean, put somebody on the moon or what, you drive a car. By, I'm telling you, we're going to make the world a better place. We're going to turn this world upside down. This, was the, this is what drove those people. They were dreamers, fully committed to the way, and they, were, they willingly died for what, for who they believed in. And I wondered if they were even in the process of that, if they were thinking back to a sermon that Jesus gave, and it's recorded for us in Matthew, where he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. So what would compel someone to go out? to look for an open door and to say, I'm going through it no matter what. No excuses. I'm, this, is, this is for us. This is for me. Um, is it because, you, could you be compelled by saying, well, I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back with regret? Or uh, maybe you have FOMO, fear of missing out. 
You're like, well, I don't, I don't know what's on the other side of that door, but I'd hate to not find out. Or maybe, um, maybe you're the type of person that just loves a new challenge. It could be any of those things. But I think verse 8 spells out the most compelling reason and the healthiest reason to make the most of open doors. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So what compels them? What compels a Jesus follower to go through an open door? They remember whose key opened the door. Remember whose key opened the door. See, the key represents authority. When Christ opens a door to serve, our role is simply to trust that Jesus, who unlocked the door, is the very same one who's going to walk through that door with us and continue journeying with us on the other side of that door. Open doors for that Philadelphia church didn't have anything to do with their budget or how big their auditorium was, what kind of programs that they had. It was really less about talent and more about trust. Jesus looked at these people and said, I'm going to give you an open door. And you've been living your life in such a way that I see you're kind of leaning forward and you're willing to trust me. And let's do this together. So maybe you're thinking, okay, what, what, if, we, what if we identify an open door? What if I, what if I recognize this open door? What's, what do we do first? Or maybe you're like, okay, let's do this. And I don't know, maybe you're thinking back to halftime talks, you know, that your coach gave you at a game or something like that. What's going to be the, how do we charge out of this room to do what God has called us and created us to do? Well, our first step is actually a very quiet step. This is what I urge you to consider. I urge you to consider paying attention. Begin by paying attention, living fully present in the moment, and pay attention for open doors, because open doors are easy to run past if you're living a loud and fast-paced life. I wonder if we have missed some open doors, because we are running at a high rate of speed, or we're not really living fully present here, we're thinking so far ahead or so far back and regret that we miss the open door that's right, that's right here with us. Paying attention requires us to slow down, which may be one of the most countercultural things for us to do. To slow down, to lean into the here and now. It requires that in the stillness we attune our ears to God's voice and we learn to discern His voice apart from all the other voices that are vying for our attention. Now, if you begin to really pay attention and look for an opportunity to serve, an opportunity to give your life away for the good of others, what you're going to discover is that um, the challenge is not in finding an open door to serve. The challenge is, is going to be in knowing which door, which open door are you going to run through? Which opportunity to serve are you going to lean into? Because we can't do it all. You can't do it all. And so if you're trying to discern which opportunity it is, can you see why paying attention is so important? Rather than running out and saying, yeah, let's do it. And taking the first open door, maybe God's saying, well, I have a specific door for you. And it could be for you, for us as a church. It could be for you personally. For about um, 25 years or so, I've been a pretty avid journaler. 
and journaling may not be a spiritual practice that, that serves for transformation and growth in you. I'm not saying that it's for everyone, but for me, uh, journaling has, has been that. Um, it's one of the ways that's, that's helped me draw closer to God, but it's also, um, one of the things that I journal is when I, for one, journaling kind of requires that you be still. It requires that you slow down. In other words, it helps me to pay attention. And in those moments of paying attention, what I think is really important is to write down any open doors that I believe God is providing for me. And I don't write it down because I think I'll forget that he told me as much as I write it down because someday I know I'm going to question that he told me. I'm going to get to a point where I'm like, is that, you know, when things get tough, I'm going to be like, I don't, is that really what I was supposed to do? I mean, I can think of why I probably shouldn't do that right now. Maybe the timing isn't right or, and I can kind of have my list of, well, I'm, I'm kind of small and weak excuses. But when I journal it, what it does is it allows me to flip back and to go back and be reminded that it was God's key that opened the door. When you have those moments where you're like, okay, this, this is what I'm supposed to do. I know that I am being pulled in this direction. I encourage you to write it down because that's a way to go back and be reminded that it was God's key that opened this door for you. It was God's key and his authoritative and sovereign plan that provided this. And so in this way, my journals sound like clinking, jangling keys. <laughs> it's the sound of Jesus' keys that's reminding me of his authority. So your two action steps. Action step number one is to pay attention. To pay attention. To listen for the jangling, clinking keys in God's hand. Pay attention for those times when God is turning a possibility into an opportunity. Pay attention to those times where something wells up within you like an impulsive yes. You're like, this is what I was made to do, and I can't say no to this. Pay attention to those moments. And action step number two, keep a record of open doors. You can journal it. You can write it down. Uh, maybe you share it with a trusted spiritual friend. Maybe it's something that you share with your faith community group. Um, and the good in that is they can help you when you get to that point where you're second-guessing and wondering and doubting. They can go, no, when you shared that with us, we really sensed, we agreed with you that that's what God wanted you to do. And they can, it's, it's, it's such a powerful um, and, and encouragement and accountability to us in moments like that. So when we say, um, pay attention, um, that's a difficult thing for us to do. We all have a short attention span. We can, as, as old people, <laughs> we can say, well, teenagers these days, I mean, they have all those distractions and their attention span is so short. But can we agree that we take just a moment of silence and our minds just go crazy all over the place? It's hard to pay attention. I mean, even in our time earlier, we, we, we paused to reflect and to pray for the churches in those cities. How many of us all of a sudden were thinking, oh, man, what am I, what am I doing for lunch today? I, gotta, I think we're out of Pop-Tarts. i, I got to put that on my list. And you, seriously, you get quiet and you think of the most random things. 
But I believe that this is kind of like a muscle, a spiritual muscle that we can train and we can strengthen. And as we journey, we'll be able to pay attention better. We'll be able to fine-tune our hearing where we can tell the difference between God's voice and some other voice, some other personal yearning that might be pulling us in some way. So I want you to pay attention. And specifically, I would encourage you to pay attention to your loves, to your desires. I would encourage you to pay attention to those things that break your heart. Pay attention to those things that really um, bring your soul to life when you think about, wow, God, would you, me? You would want to use me in that? I, wow, yes, yes. Because it just it resonates with you. And that might mean that something that is, that is resonates and aligns with you, it might not with me and vice versa. And I believe as a church, one of the things that we can do is we can come alongside you and equip you and encourage you and train you so that you can fully walk through, run through that open door and do what God's called you to do. I believe that's one of the key responsibilities of the church. And I do believe, and I want to encourage you to just join us as we pray, what is, is there a specific open door that he is giving to us as a church? Sometimes God pulls a group of people together because we're able to do a whole lot more together than any one of us could do by ourselves. What is that open door? I think the key to finding that begins with being still and paying attention. And I also believe it's, let's just live leaning forward. Can we do that? Can we live kind of leaning forward? We believe that God is opening doors and we want to be ready. It's just that that holy nudge is all it's going to take for us to go. So what open doors are in front of you right now? What clanking, jingling keys might you be hearing? Because God, knowing you, has opened a door specifically that he is calling you to walk through. Do you have an open door to love and serve your family? Do you have an open door to make Jesus known in a real practical and loving way in your workplace? What about in your neighborhood? What might he be saying to you in the way of an open door just with those that are right there around you? Maybe uh, you are identifying an open door because it addresses a particular injustice that breaks your heart. Something already come to mind for that. Um, could it be that your open door is one that you walked through earlier in your life, but then you settled? Or maybe you walked back out. Could it be that God has still got that door propped open? He said, I want you to finish what you started. Maybe you don't see an opportunity, but you need to start living eager and hopeful expecting to inch up on a possibility that God could turn into an opportunity. Your open door may lead you across the bay. It may lead you across the pond. It may lead you across the street. It may mean that you stay right there where you are because that's the door that God has opened for you. And maybe, maybe we open a door that looks like just an ordinary wardrobe closet and we walk through it, 
And we have this incredible Narnian experience as we experience God and His kingdom and His fullness. And it's something that we would have never known if we hadn't opened the, uh, if we hadn't walked through that open door. So what does God do with hesitant, fear-prone settlers who somehow find the courage to pioneer through open doors? Let's look at verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So get this. Ironically, the people who lived in fear of earthquakes were given the promise of never being shaken as pillars in heaven. Take this to the bank. I am, Jesus is saying, I am going to place you in heaven as a pillar. You may feel weak now, but you are going to be the picture of strength. And I'm going to etch God's very name onto you, onto your strengthened pillar selves. Jesus writes letters to churches because he sees potential. He looks at them and says, I love you as you are. I love the song that we sang, Come As You Are. He loves us as we are right here, how we came here this morning. But he also wants to open doors for us to experience him in a new way. Jesus urges churches to be deeply devoted pioneers who are willing to risk everything for the kingdom. So as a church, can we declare Bay Marin as a group of Christians who courageously run through open doors with great confidence and trust in Jesus? I want us with this picture of Jesus as the ultimate pioneer and risk taker, I want us to have that in our mind as we prepare for communion. So if you're going to be helping in any way with communion, you can go ahead and begin to get in place. Um, There was no greater pioneer than Jesus. And in Philippians 2, we kind of have this snapshot of what um, his pioneering life was like, his risk-taking life. He gave up everything in heaven to come down to earth, to live as a man, living as a man with temptations and challenges and heartaches and pain. In other words, holy and true, real and genuine. Yet Jesus never, ever settled. Listen to how Paul describes this journey of Jesus. Having the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, real and genuine, holy and true, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Communion is a time when we remember that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows the challenges that there are with open doors, but we are here to celebrate that he walked through that door. You could think of it in this way. God the Father opened a door for a once-for-all sacrifice to be made, and Jesus walked through that door, and now we have that opportunity to celebrate that. So if Jesus 
is a key part of your life. I encourage you to think through, um, and just a, with a heart of gratitude, what he went through for you and for me. And let that be just what you can chew on as you are preparing for this time of communion. Let me pray for us. And um, as the music is playing, you can begin to make your way down front and celebrate this sacred meal. Father, we want to say thank you for Jesus. Jesus, when you were in the garden and you were struggling, you cried out to your Father, I thank you, Jesus, that you didn't settle that you carried out that ultimate sacrifice for us. And we say thank you. Thank you sounds so inadequate. But as we receive this bread and drink that cup, Lord, we remember your death on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.